Hey everyone, welcome to An Event for Life with Brad Cox and Shane Buzzer. I'm Brad. And I'm Shane. An Event for Life is the podcast where we take you on a journey through eventful lives of inspirational event industry leaders from around the world. That's right. We'll be sharing their stories, impact and insight into the complex world of events. So if you like these stories, don't forget to like, subscribe and share with your mates. This is An Event for Life. Hello, Buzz. How are you, mate? I'm good, Brad. Yourself? Yeah, yeah, not too bad. You've survived the spring racing kind of all I can see. You're looking a little uh, weary, but uh, you pulled up all right? Look, I'm here. Let's oh. go with that. No, it was, it was a huge week. Uh, anyone who knows me knows that I, I love the spring carnival. It's a great time of year for social networking and just a great industry in general. And they did a ripping job this year too. Unbelievable. My eyes probably tell the story. of. Uh, they do. How many days did you spend at the track? I did three. I, I missed Oaks. Um, Just a slight little midweek recovery needed? It kind of was. I, I was planning on going and I thought, no, oh, no, I, I, I need it. Plus I was busy as well um, on a work day, but went to the other days and uh, – they got some great weather, which was is always helpful, but the, the setup just gets better and better. Like a lot of our other major events, it just gets better and better year on year. Well, so. it's more than just the horse racing now, isn't it? Yeah. Like there's so much else going on. So, I mean, you look at everything in the media and it's like you barely even see a horse these days. It's, uh, I mean, you can if you want. You but can if you uh, want, but yeah, like, you can like, certainly like enjoy yourself. Yeah. yeah. Like yeah, tennis. Yeah. You can yep. go and not see a, a, a game of tennis and probably the Grand Prix as well if you're into that. But totally. uh, a, a really great experience and, and something that we should be really proud is in our backyard. hundred uh, percent. Look, we're a little bit biased, but Melbourne does do it, I think, better than anywhere else in the world. And uh, I would argue and debate that with anyone who wants to have a go at it. But uh, hey, speaking of the Spring Racing Carnival, um, fresh off that is the Executive General Manager of Experience and Events, uh, who's no doubt a little weary himself, but uh, is here with us in the studio. As an entrepreneurial executive leader and lover of hospitality, he has navigated the highly competitive industries across sport, thoroughbred racing, venue management, event management, and hospitality operations. Would you please welcome the very sharp-looking Luke Keenborough. Did I say that right? Give me the... uh, Kinnabarra. Kinnabarra. There you go. My apologies, mate. All good. I should have checked that first, shouldn't I? No problem. (laughs) And good to be here. Thanks for having me. Fantastic. How are you, first and foremost? I'm I'm pretty good. Shane used the word before about weary, and I think... Our team probably all, all this week have been a little bit up and down, um, but sit here pretty proud and, you know, there's, there's the element of exhaustion with it, but really happy with what we've achieved over these last few weeks. It's pretty special. Yeah, and congratulations to you. It's been, it was a fantastic event and uh, monumental effort on everyone's behalf as they always are, but, uh, you know, you don't often get the kudos, so well done. No, and and your you first one too. First one, yeah. Yep. I've been in the industry for a while, but certainly first Melbourne Cup carnival and... Yeah, it's quite quite remarkable. I sort of pinched myself there on Sunday when you're reflecting back on the week prior and the weeks prior to that um, to be part of that, having grown up in, in the sport and in the in the local area. I think you said before, Shane, that to have that in our backyard is pretty, pretty special. It's the original major event in Australia and uh, to be part of that and play a role, um, you, you do have to pinch yourself. Yeah, and how, just, I mean, we'll jump straight into that for now to start with, but how did you find that experience? Because um, I know you've been at BRC now for nearly a year, but you you started on the back of mm. last Spring Carnival. So how, how did you find it all? I found the transition probably easier than when um, I'd, I'd left Mooney Valley the first time to go to Marvel Stadium because of because I'd been in the industry. I, I felt that, that just the different idiosyncrasies, I guess, of the racing industry generally and just um, the flow of the event schedule and all those type of things and knowing what the Spring Carnival was, I think that helped my transition. Having 
or knowing a number of people who worked at the VRC and, and the connected partner network across the VRC, having worked with a lot of those um, businesses and people over a long period of time also helped transition. And then I walked into a business that's just really, you know, it's a world-class venue, it's a world-class event, world-class um, operation and just great people and I find in our industry that people are what make our industry great and they, you know, were really welcoming and engaging from day one and and I, and I bought into that straight away and, and I think that's why we're, you know, we, we, we've had some success this year. Fantastic. Well, let's take it back. You grew up in Essendon area. Mm. What were some of your early uh, passions growing up back then and has horse racing always been a love of yours from an early age? Uh, I've... Yeah, um, early passions were absolutely sport. Like, um, you know, I grew up in Ascot Vale. I attended a, um, a, a Christian brother school in the city, so I used to travel um, from grade five, I think it was, and, and grade five to year ten and ended up at St Bernard's in Essendon. And I started working at at the MCG as a kid. I think I was 12 or 13 years of age selling footy records and I'd do that after school on a Friday afternoon I'd, and I did that for probably eight or nine years. So I was lucky to... To be exposed to sport at that level at that age, you know, selling footy records and then going in and watching AFL games, it was you know I'd, I'd always loved football. I loved cricket, um, and racing probably came out of me through when I started work as a casual at Mooney Valley. And I don't know, there was always a bit of a, um, a moniker of St Bernard's, like you're either there, you're either into sport or you're into punting. And sort of we probably at VCE level, we'd all have a bit of a flutter over the spring carnival and. Um, yeah, we, we went and took a car park site when we were in year eleven with one of our one of our mates' older brothers got a car park site and so there was always that probably draw to the sport and I just guess Australian culture and way of life of having a having a bet over the carnival, there was always something there and then and ended up working at a race club and I guess my passion for the industry grew grew from there. I do certainly appreciate the sport and what it stands for and um, particularly in that equine welfare space as well, what, what, we're, what we're doing there now is really important to me and um, being part of that and everything that surrounds the racing content itself, that hospitality and experience element, being able to play a role in that, I think, yeah, I, I love it. And Luke, like uh, growing up in Ascavale, and so did I, I grew up in Ascavale, so you and I had Flemington Racecourse and Mooney Valley Racecourse literally in our backyard. Was it the atmosphere? Was the atmosphere one of the things that really drew you in? Mm. Yeah, it was. I, I started at Mooney Valley as a casual in 1995, so that was Octagonal's first Cox Plate. I, I went the year before with some family friends and, you know, it was Cox Plate Day. Solvit won the Cox Plate that year and I remember it vividly like almost like it was yesterday that that atmosphere and that amphitheatre of the valley and then and then going to Flemington race days and going to Caulfield race days because uh, it's so much more than just you know, the racing component. There's all the other elements you touched on before around entertainment and that experience element. Like I was always drawn to those, particularly the bigger days because um, they're an event in themselves, mm. you know. And you've ended up down the hospitality path in particular, you know, even before you've got to sort of your current role. What was the draw card that grabbed you into particularly that hospitality space uh, from a professional standpoint? So I started as like casual, just, you know, um, effectively Busing, picking up glasses, and and then sort of evolved from there. Worked in all all facets of food and beverage service. When I finished VCE, I actually wanted to be a psychologist. So I actually went and spent six months doing that down at Vic Uni, and uh, and at the same time I was working still in hospitality. And it was probably just that I don't know, not a sliding doors moment per se, but I sort of realised well I was enjoying the money more and the 
and the social aspect, I probably wasn't the best studier um, out there. So, you know, deferred that psychology degree and then probably the rest is history, to be honest, just and worked my way through um, various roles at, at the Valley and then had that period where I went to Marvel Stadium with Delaware North and, again, a global hospitality provider around the world and it's sort of always been in it. So just, I, I don't know, probably the social aspect of it, the yep. the people connection, I'm a people person, I, I love that element of it and, and the ability to serve and look after people is probably something I'm always, I don't know, it's been in my blood, I guess. Such a great training ground. I mean, we've said yeah. it a few times, that whole hospitality sector. Absolutely. We see so many come out of it. I'm a hospital guy. Yeah, I'm, well, yeah, I am as well. You know, we've yeah. all been there and done some of it. And I think you, you kind of need to. And maybe it comes down to the people person side of things and we're all that way geared and you just naturally progress throughout your career. But I think with the training, correct me if I'm wrong, but you've, been part of it for so long the the breeding ground the training ground of uh, of hospitality for so many great event professionals that have gone on to bigger and better things is, is certainly there yeah absolutely and and i encourage it now particularly like even at our local our local football club or uh, even back at st bernard's we had some sessions there with them in recent years about encouraging 15 16 year olds to get involved in food and beverage um or in hospitality generally because it is that particularly now with devices and stuff. We didn't have that when we were growing up, but being able to establish a social connection and, you know, push in and clear a table and serve and all that sort of stuff, I think it builds builds confidence, it builds um, improvement in how you can engage with people. Bit of awareness too. It is. Um, yeah. I, I've often said, this is a bit off, to- off topic, but when you're at the supermarket, you can always tell who hasn't worked in hospitality or played sport because they have no awareness of what's around them. That is true. Yeah. 100%. Yeah, I agree with that. Teamwork as well, you know, both of those areas. And, mm. I mean, we come back to events again. It's, you know, it's such a team-orientated approach. It is. You know, you sort of touched on it before and your team that's now delivered the spring racing carnival, like you can't do that by yourself. It has to come from the entire team and it's it's built from the ground up. And I think sports are, are again, another great training ground in that in that area that you can't learn anywhere else no um, certainly not out of a textbooks at uni nah, and, definitely uh, you not. Know, i'm with you as well like i was no no road scholar on the university side of things but you know let me work and i and i loved it hmm. um and so with marvel um i actually didn't know that you you were at marvel at one point was would that a, what was it called at the time uh it was it would have been eddie head stadium eddie had and yep. at, at the time do you think that ground particularly was try, still trying to find itself in a, in the hospitality world and where it sat. I mean, yes, it was a sporting venue, but was was it was it still sorting itself out there in that hospitality space? Yeah, I think it was. I mean, I walked in the, in an interesting time. Like it was back before the AFL owned owned the venue. It was private equity, I think, owned at the time. And I know you're a Carlton man, mate. Ian Collins was the CEO there at the time, and and I got to work with some great great people at the stadium and at and at Delaware, both from you know those based back in America, but also the the current um, the current GM Gary Brown, who's still there now. That probably propelled my business acumen and knowledge and how to how to be more commercial with how you go about all, all, all the work I was doing. So I, I really enjoyed my time there working with them. They were probably finding their feet. I think Delaware was still you know growing in Australia, and whilst they had the tennis centre and they had Eddie had at the time. At my time there, they just won the SCG contract, so they were they were in a growth phase, but still working through that concession based sort of hospitality provider. Yeah, yeah to, I guess that's what I was getting yeah, at for, yeah. from a concession to Correct. a more experienced hospitality. Absolutely. Yeah, area. Yeah, and um, they and they weren't there yet, so you know some key key products like Diamond Club, Medallion Club, these type of experiences, corporate suites. 
there was a lot of work still to be done. Like they're on that path of improvement. And I think we certainly continue to improve it. And certainly the stadium were uh, customer focused first and foremost every time, you know, so you always have to be on it every single event. Well, they're in good hands with Marcus mm-hmm. Werner too, right? Uh, yeah. Well, it's interesting because about the same time, you know, I, I was doing something very similar down at uh, the tennis centre with Delaware as well, who were in, again, we'd gone exactly the same path and I can remember it happening in unison as it happened. But maybe for for our listeners, you know, if you could give an insight into, you know, some of the things that I guess you did and you challenged and you changed through that progression with Delaware in particular and sort of where they were as a concession to where they are now and how you undertook that? Yeah, so I think coming from that, I guess, club-based background of the Valley, I guess, at the time and an in-house provider, sort of some of that methodology I thought could apply in principle to how you deliver an experience for those, particularly those key areas because they were, you know, and, and people was the other thing, right? So, you know, we need to recruit and bring in some talent to help you know, propel the corporate space, propel the dining areas because from a retail perspective they were sort of well covered and they did that really well and they did bulk volume numbers really well. It was probably the when it scales back down to the 10 or 15 or 20,000 crowds, that's where it sort of got a bit, little bit you know, wobbly and a bit, uh, a bit flaky but the correlation between the two venues was also really important. So back at that time, Jackie Scammell, who's, you know. Yes, very she, well. She's, she's a fantastic operator in, in, in her career in that stadium world and now obviously the work she does um, in, a, in a service queue um, business. But tried to align with her as well. So they, we got some synergy with our people as well across both sites. But the other th- important thing was to get closer with the stadium. Like at times it was a little bit, you know, not us against them, but we weren't as cohesive enough so coming together and working together on improvement I think propelled it a lot quicker um, as opposed to going off in your own in your own devices and trying to you know reshape or deliver an experience without the buying of the of, of the tenant effectively yep. is never really going to work. I 100% agree and you know again it's the synergy around it we talk about you know stakeholder engagement and collaboration and those sort of key words that keep coming up and keep coming up in every, every conversation we have. I think the hospitality side of things came into that fold and you know I can remember exactly the same conversation effectively. It's like if we can get every stakeholder on the table together mm. then we're going to get a better result because we can analyse what everybody needs out of it and work together to get there rather than just, a, you know, oh, well, we only serve chicken and beef and that's it. And it's like, well, that doesn't work for our people. Oh, well, that's going to have to work because that's all we got. And it's like, well, that's not going to work. How do, we, how do we fix these? And, you know, I often talk about, you know, there was a lot of barriers in those earlier days about there was a lot of problems that were so-called unfixable. Um, they can be fixed and mm. just needed the right heads like yourself to be sort of coming together and being so open to change and development um, and working forward. It's working. Uh, I mean, I've worked yeah. with Marvel fairly recently, um, Sam Buckley and, and the mm. team there doing a great job. It yeah. is a genuine collaboration. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, it's not a yeah. good job. And I guess you probably saw some of that, saw some of the foundations of that of the, the product now yeah, and in well, place there. And for me, I was I was in a really good time in my career to, to make that move there at the time. And someone like, you know, Michael Green, who's recently um, – yeah, you know, he retires, I think, in a, in a couple of weeks' time, mm-hmm. and he's had an unbelievable career at at the stadium, and will leave a legacy there. He he sort of took me in a little bit to you know because I I was yearning for that growth and development as well, and sort of new big stadium. You've come from a small suburban race course effectively into you know the real world effectively. <laughs> he was he was phenomenal for me, as was Colo, as was some of the other stadium guys, as were the Delaware team. 
Um, and I think you've got to have that appetite to, to mm. grow and want to get better. And if you come with that mindset then and then you can pass it down to your team as well. And what were some of the eye-opening things for you moving from Mooney Valley into into the stadium space? Like personally you walk in and go, wow, I've got to take this on. Or Yeah, I, th- I think there, I felt at times like I probably had a little bit of um, – Imposter syndrome through my career at different times. You because probably you had to wear of, a collar. That was one of the yeah, first prob- things, right? Yeah, prob- <laughs> probably wasn't too, mate. But um, yeah, that that imposter syndrome, I think I've probably suffered from at times in my career. Like you just feel, do I really belong in the role I'm in? And uh, there was a little bit of that, not fake it till you make it, but I felt a little bit like that at times when you're when you're dealing with an Essendon Football Club or North Melbourne or the Bulldogs or whatever. Because you, and you're talking to their commercial team and they've got. They've all got different expectations. You want to respond to all of those expectations and sometimes that all, it's not a one-size-fits-all. So being able to just approach it with the right intent, wanting to improve where you can with the lens that you can't always just accept or agree to everything that they're wanting because then you know the flow-on effect that might have in terms of can you actually execute that mm-hmm. at the right level. So I think it's over time you just got to keep proving that you can keep coming back, you can keep keep improving and keep getting better and then they effectively you build trust in that relationship and then effectively you're then working together. You're then solving things before the other person has thought of it, do you know what I mean, yeah. as and a collaboration. And do you feel like your own personal confidence has grown through that journey as you've sort of gone on through your career from from those early days? Yeah, there's no, there's no doubt that I probably had – I've always had great work ethic. I've always had – I want to always get better and, and, and grow as a person and I think – when I, when I left the Valley the first time, I went to Marvel and then I went back to Mooney Valley, I, I was definitely more progressed and more more in tune with myself and where I wanted to go in my career. And then, I don't know, that last 10 years there at the Valley feels like it's gone and passed me by pretty quickly, to be <laughs> honest, but and now I'm here where I'm today. It's a good segue though because I was about to ask. So you went back. You went yep. back to the Valley. What what, what happened there? What, what brought you back? Um, first, first and foremost, it was family, to be honest. Um, and I, and I've often said this to those close to me that maybe if I was single or didn't have a young family, I, I might've still been at, at, at the stadium or, or in that world. But in the second year I was at Marvel, we had our second boy, um, Liam and our, our oldest boy was 18 months at the time. And, wow. and that second year there was, and when you're in a stadium world, like, I don't know, I'm sure you guys are the same, like. You work every event like you can't sort of when you whilst you can probably take some liberties at certain times. You'd, you'd be there for the North Rio games. You'd be there for the, you'd be there for the um, U two concert. You'd be there for all the events, and then during the week is when you know in in the leadership role you're in. You've got to be there as well. You got to be present. Yeah. You got to be so I sort of that's 100% six, committed hundred percent into it, right? So from that March to that September period, I was like six month block of really hardly ever home. And it sort of nearly – it didn't nearly break our relationship with my wife and I, but it, it got really tense there at times. And then towards the end of that year, um, that opportunity to return to Moody Valley came up and some of it was about, you know, comfort and getting the quality of life back. But the other part of it was the master plan that was just really starting, right? So I wasn't just going back to the same role, it was going back to more and growth opportunity again. So I was sort of going to get that balance right. And I reflect back now and I have no regrets and, um, you know, family life's amazing and, but also I've got great memories from those two years I, I spent at Marvel Stadium as well. I think it's a, 
a good point there about sort of balance um, and interested to see how you mentioned your relationship and sort of working flat out and there's a number of people in this industry that will probably be nodding their head going, yeah, it's a really hard balance between work life, family life and and trying to navigate that. Can you give us a bit of an idea of how did you manage that relationship and work on that relationship to make sure you didn't lose the personal side of things and you weren't just 100% invested in your work outside of obviously moving careers and stuff. But it's an important part of educating those that are around us and in our networks about what we do. Mm. I probably haven't deviated from a heavy workload and, and, and mm. a lot of time away from home, right? And like I've hardly seen the family over the last sort of month as it is, right? But what what I realised was that the time I'm home, I've, I, need to be, I need to be clicked in, I need to be connected, can't be distant, which is what I was for that period through Marvel. So learning to deal with that, going, and I sought help about it because I, I realised that, and I'm, and I'm open and talk about that. I needed to address it. I needed to deal with those things myself. And now I have, there's consistencies I've added into my life now that help me navigate through that. So whether that's um, uh, the work I do with my own physical health and exercise, the work I do with my own mental health, that is a consistent behaviour that I've, I've introduced over recent years to help me be present and be in the moment and when I'm home, I'm home. And, yes, you still get you still get distractions, you'll still get hit up to do work when you're at home. But getting the balance right is really important. So I, I probably had it where I, was, I wasn't home. Then when I was home, I was just completely headless and not engaged at all and I wasn't present. So being present when you're home is really, really critical um, because we you, you can't take away from the workload that we have in our world, particularly – now it's like we're all working more than we've ever worked. Um, so, yeah. Touche. I could talk about was, that for a long time. I was going to say I'm sure you, you were nodding and having a few moments over That's there, Brad. It's very, very similar. But I think it's an important topic. I mean, not that we need to dive right into it, but that it's not just about mental health. It's it's about understanding your triggers and your life and implementing some of those things. And we don't talk about enough about physical health, um, about mental health, about things that we can do about being engaged in stuff that's outside of our work um, and yeah, exactly the same, you know, and you need the help. It's a support network thing. We've had uh, a few of these conversations with our guests about yeah. the same thing, Luke, and, mm. yeah, so you're spot on. In terms of your work at Mooney Valley when you went back and you sort of spent, you know, 11-odd years there, how did you see the guest experience evolve during that time? Uh, it certainly evolved in terms of improve. Like we at the time – Wanted to wanted to take the culinary experience on course to to a level it hadn't been, and and that that started with, you know, people. Um, you know, there were some long-standing team members in that team that, you know, were either you know, ready to move on or were moving on. So we sh- we were able to shake that up a little bit, um, have a core focus on on the whole race day dining experience, uh, and then an opportunity was presented to us back in around 2018, I think it was from memory, where. Yeah, I know you had Gab on recently. The Harry the Horror team have a have an annual um, net, networking golf golf um, yep. experience, and I was fortunate to bump into um, Matt Kaminsky from the PGA at the time, and was able to play with him. And then we, we just got talking, and then and then we'd had a vision. There was a vision and strategic play to move from outside the four walls of the race course out into external hospitality experiences and sort of planets aligned and we're able to land the PGA Tour contract and that meant World Cup of Golf and the President's Cup and from that then again, further investment in people, getting the right people on board and then just constantly sort of having that as a focus and then equally well supported by board and 
CEO and executive to be able to double down on that experience because if you don't have that support, you're sort of just treading water effectively. So, And then there was also acquisition of more pub venues so then you could expand and invest more and all that type of stuff. So I think that really helped have it as a focus first and foremost. It's all about the on-course experience effectively. Like if they're coming there and they're not getting that culinary experience or that level of service over the bar, well, they're not going to come back to you. They're not going to buy a membership. Was How did you um, convince, I guess, those bigger other events like the PGA and stuff that, you know, effectively branching out of your four walls, you were the right guys to go down that path because when they've got, a, you know, options of choice, it's a bit of a unique a, new, a unique decision on their behalf. Yeah, I think, again, it's like timing. Timing, yeah. relationship was the key. Being able to sell what you knew you could deliver was really important and then effectively what it did, that, that brand was developed and that Dana McPherson brand was developed on the back of that partnership, right? So then then again, you invest, you prove up that your first event you've delivered with them, you've ticked all the boxes I expected and then you can go again and deliver an event like the President's Cup. Did you feel pressure as well, Luke, in in the context of Melbourne as a as a hospitality world that we're in here is amazing. It's elite. Mm. Let's be honest. Melbourne is is you know one of the world's leaders there. Did you feel any of that pressure in ensuring that you were, you know, aligning with that and and keeping up with that? Yeah, absolutely. I think we all um, constantly, you know, you're looking at trends overseas. You're looking at trends locally. Um, I've probably never been one that has wanted to mirror or mimic what others are doing but if you're seeing that you know Caulfield or the VRC or Mooney Valley or the MCG or Marvel or the AO or whatever have you know raised the bar you well you've got you've got an obligation to raise the bar yourself and continue to to grow and get better um so I think that you know the whole that old saying you know rising tide lifts all boats like everyone's got to everyone's got to step up and you've got to keep stepping up otherwise you you fail to exist really like if you know, I'd, I'd, I would hate to think what it w- what it would look like if you if you haven't if you've just stayed flat. Right? You, you're a venue that no one wants to engage with or support, really. Especially in a, I mean, you know, Mooney Valley is in a city still. Let's be honest. But um, Marcus, when he was on the show, talked about that restaurant experience at a venue, mm. and he was very big on that. Even when you're dealing with six hundred, eight hundred, a thousand packs events, was that talked about mm. at all? Yeah. At yeah. Mooney absolutely. Valley? Absolutely. And and. And equally, it's it, it's it, whether it's a temporary environment, whether it's a permanent environment, and you've, you've got to constantly be looking for that element. They're, they're effectively the customers paying more money to come and dine at a race meeting or an event than they would if they went to um, one of Melbourne's best restaurants, right? So, yes, the entertainment elements that come with that experience um, support that level of investment, but the food and beverage experience and the service needs to mirror and match or better that restaurant experience. Otherwise, what's the value proposition? And it's a level of expectation as well. I mean, they go out pre-event and they're down at one of those fantastic restaurants and they're having a beautiful time and the food and beverage is amazing. They expect when they're paying that sort of money that they're going to get above and beyond that again. And mm-hmm. I think even to the internationals point, I don't know you from your experience, but certainly I've seen you know the internationals come in they have an expectation of what Melbourne can deliver from a food and beverage point of view and they expect that at their events, not just at the restaurants. Absolutely. After 11 years, you made the move to VRC. Um, can you tell us a bit about that transition? Yeah, for sure. I'll probably go back a step. Like pro- probably six months out from moving moving on from the Valley, I'd, I'd made a decision and it was time to, time to make a move. Um, and, I, and I think I went about that in the right way. I, I went and saw it. Um, some advice from a couple of close 
confidence on in regards to how to do it. I didn't want to be, I didn't want to put my hand up and head above water and say I'm on the market effectively. Mm. I'm looking for jobs or applying for jobs. I wanted to do it in the right way and part of that was about a fact-finding mission around what needed to be the next role for me. Um, what I what I was resolved with was that I need to, I know I wanted to stay in sport and I wanted to find, you know, the right culture and the right team environment for me to, to click into. Now, whilst a few opportunities came up in that time, none of them really appealed to when the opportunity around the VRC was first put forward to me and a couple of conversations then led into a, you know, a formal process effectively and at every step along the way I was even drawn more to this role and to the VRC and I spoke earlier about how you know as a kid I'd go to Flemington and even during COVID like it seems like a weird example here as to what drew me to Flemington but during that period of like particularly the 2020 year when you couldn't go to a park without bumping into 1,500 people. We as a family would walk from home to Flemington Racecourse and through the empty ba- empty grandstands and I probably fell more in love with the racecourse then at a, at a weird time of everyone's life to then in the back of my mind when I was going through that process last year was thinking I've almost it's, – it's not fate or anything but I was always not drawn to the role. Uh, and then when I was fortunate to be given that position – um, you know, then you go through the, the process of letting everyone at the Valley know that I was moving on and um, had a great career there and all that and I've got amazing friends and um, colleagues that I've, I'm still in touch with and stuff from there but I, I really genuinely feel like I've fallen on my feet in this current role um, for a number of reasons. Like it, it is effectively the pinnacle in um, the racing world, uh, Flemington and headquarters and having experienced last week um, I really do have to pinch myself to think that you've been part of this. Um, so to, to live it out has been extraordinary and, yeah, I just realised that after a second period at the Valley that it was time to move because it – and it wasn't an age thing at all. It was just I, I felt like I'd done enough and I felt like it was time to challenge myself and stretch myself. And So a very personal decision at that level, not necessarily about where you were working, it was about challenging yourself. Correct, yeah. So your role is executive general manager experience and events. So what are some of the main tasks associated with that role? Yeah, so I guess it's easily defined. There's, there's three key pillars I, I see my role. So what, one of them is the experience design element, so the creative strategy for areas like the birdcage, for example. So that's my team and our supportive teams in and around the, the VRC that then develop effectively a brief to then work with our agencies to develop the creative intent for areas like the birdcage, the park, the club lawn, these type of experiences on course across and also outside of the Melbourne Cup Carnival for Flemington Racing Spectacular and the events we put on as well. The second pillar is effectively events and entertainment, right? So any we, we do up to 80 events a year that are run by us. So that's member, member events on course or off course that are um, all very different in their own in their own right. They are Melbourne Cup Carnival events. They are everything from a barrier draw through to a Kennedy Oaks Club lunch, for example. And then the entertainment elements of that. So la- last week we had over 300 live entertainment performances across the race course. You know, DJ, DJ bands, international acts like, you know, the cause, Joel Corey, for example, all um, the pre-cup ceremony, all, all of the entertainment across 
the race course and our events is also rolls up into us. And then the third pillar is the hospitality experiences. So I've said this often since I started that Flemington is so unique that not one hospitality partner could deliver the whole experience. So Crown are our principal hospitality partner. They're 365 days a year. They are our hospitality partner. We work hand in glove with them. They've been amazing. Their second year in, they've delivered an amazing carnival. And then we expand that out to seven hospitality partners, including Crown for the carnival. So, and I think we get the best result by doing that. Uh, we've got Melbourne's best hospitality providers that, you know, we have three in the, four in the birdcage. We have, you know, another one in Atlantic down at the Elms. So the big group food and desire, Curtis Stone Events and Crown help deliver the birdcage. We have Atlantic down at, in the Elms precinct, Crown obviously the rest of the precinct. Uh, and then we have likes of Libby Reed again, Curtis Stone Events and another um, operator we brought in this year called Buddy Creative who helped deliver the Palooza experience for us. So quite diverse but absolutely necessary. So they're effectively the three key streams of work that our team are responsible for. Do you think um, that that achieves probably the best result because they're then focusing on their area as opposed to maybe uh, one company, as you say, taking care of all of it and some areas might get lost. But, you know, if, if one company or, you know, multiple, but they have a designated area that they want to excel at, do you think that's what makes it such a success? Yeah, 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 I do. It's a little bit of that, you know, less is more divide and conquer type attitude. Yeah. Because honestly, having worked you know with the Delaware or closely with Crown, I, I just respectfully, I think they would be stretched far too thin. Right? Whereas now they can all have a narrow focus and you know have a you know laser intent on how they need to execute on the areas that they need to execute on. And we're very blessed. Like uh, those hospitality partners I mentioned, aside from a couple who are a bit newer to the, the VRC, have been part of the carnival for over a decade and. It's our, our teams deliver unbelievable experiences and, and have an incredible work rate, but we also have an amazing partner network that help us all, you know, deliver the four days of the Magical Melbourne Cup Carnival. Two questions. The hospitality partners, with so many on track and on course and on precinct, for want of a better term, how do you manage consistency? Um, across those to make sure you're delivering one product from a from a customer and guest point of view. Yeah, so it's it started. Uh, I started back in January, and um, the club had been through the COVID years, so sort of you know contracts had been rolled over and those sort of things. So one of the first things we spoke about was giving some giving each of them some confidence in the market. To um, you know, we took some things to to tender earlier in the year. We, lo- we locked them into two year partnerships each of them. So give them some. Stability yep. for them to then reinvest, and then once you award each of the various areas, you then work closely with them. So I have a, I have a food and beverage team in my team, and we work closely with we work closely with Crown every day, right, for all of the three sixty five days, and then each of our hospitality partners for Carnival, like it's it's weekly catch ups and follow ups and keeping abreast and planning and staying ahead of that to make sure we 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 have to overshare with expectations on client and then at the right time you get you, know, you trust each other, you hand over to them whether they're dealing with a Penfolds or a Lexus or whoever and then you, and then you have some courage and oversight onto, onto that to make sure it is um, delivered to the, to the standard and the world-class expectations that you need. But they have a vested interest as well and we, this is what we get from them to over-index in – and, and you get the benefit 
of a major event that runs over a week where you can scale up and put all your, all your resources at it, which they all do. You know, all all the key players with all the – they're on the ground, they're in there, they're working. You, you've all rolled your sleeves up. It's quite remarkable, to be honest, when you actually see it in – like, you know, having been in the industry for a long time, you knew about it. But when you're actually in there in the trenches together, it's quite remarkable and quite special. Second part of my question, you mentioned the events and entertainment space before and working with agencies in that. What's important to you guys as a major event and as an organisation in working with those agencies and what do you look for? Uh, again, it's sort of relationship first and trust, right? So there's some long-standing relationships um, that the club has had for some time. Um, so we talk about creative agencies you know, Gloss, for example, work with us closely on the creative strategy for the bird cage. They've done that for a number of years for the, with the club. Um, we have others that, that bolt into that, whether that's dot dot dash and, and others that help support bring the precinct to life. But we've also invested as a club into our own teams as well. So previously it was a lot more the other way, where it was a lot more agency, a lot more contract staff. Whereas now we, I'm really blessed in my team. I'm an incredibly talented team that. Over time, how I see it is, I'm not saying that we won't get, we will get to a world where there's you, you won't need agency because you because you will, but thankfully, you will. thankfully, <laughs> exactly. Um, but they've they've got ability to continue to take on more, and that ownership and that you know your own team being able to deliver more, I think, is a, a, a vision of ours, and ideally we can start to head down that path. But um, first and foremost, though, you need. You need that trust. You need that connection with 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 them, and effectively they become a partner, right, to deliver. And, and we've seen that um, over these over these last few weeks. You mentioned that you started uh, January. Yep. So um, when you when you did start, were you? I understand there's events year round, but were you straight into uh, spring carnival planning at that stage when you did jump into the role? Yeah, absolutely. One of the first tasks was that birdcage creative piece. Uh, I think in my first or second week it was like, you know, we needed – and we're doing that now, right? Like we've already started, you know, Monday. We're into next year's planning. No sleep in. No sleep no. in, none of that. No. Um, there you go, 12 months. It is tw- It genuinely is 12 months. But I'd probably miss that six-week block that they'd had before Christmas. So I was picking that back up again. And really a lot of introduction to start with. So I'm like – Entertainment partners, you, you're in meeting with Mushroom, Live Nation, Top Dog, you, you're working through that. What, what are our plans for this year going to be? Trust the team. Like, as I said, great team, great talent. And then creative strategy piece are really important pieces of work because you want to be able to roadshow that with our partners through the birdcage. I know the commercial ops team need to, need to be able to do that earlier. And that work had to start in January. And then and then the F&B stuff really had to get under the hood, hood of that. From day one, it was a bit of a baptism of fire, to be honest. But it was, but it was good. I, that's how I prefer to work, to be honest. I was going to say, otherwise, you you would have come in and thought, well, hang on, what am I doing here? But no, you're right. You jump straight in, and as you should, and uh, mm. as you you kind of forget, you've also got to familiarise yourself with the people and the, your new place of work. Spot on. You did that, and then yeah. bang, away you go. Yeah, and and even for me, like I guess how I've adjusted how I lead now, particularly in recent years, is very different to how I used to lead maybe five or six years ago. And sort of having confidence that the way I lead now works to then apply that to a new team, I, I was really scared, right? Is this going to work? Like is this um, – but so far it's working, right? So I'm very, very big on team connection, team values. I, I'm effectively there for them, 
right? So how I can how I can help them grow and get better. And we're now seeing, like, I had debrief with the team this morning, but little debrief. Like, we're not into the into the minutiae at all, but just to reflect, we actually haven't gone back since Saturday and reflected a lot, and just to tell them, you know, how proud you are of them and what they've done because they've all stepped into spaces that they've been able to now and. The, the, the magic of team members growing into a role and just taking more ownership of stuff and seeing them and trusting them to be able to do that is something quite quite special. You talk about trust, ownership, empowering teams and supporting them. What are some of the sort of metrics or some of the things that you do personally that allows you to be able to do that for them? Yeah, so our our monthly team meetings are more about – it's. Yeah, it might sound a bit weird, but we're we're into like vulnerability of the conversations with each and building trust and and trust and um, connection with each other. Not talking about you know what event have we got coming up. What like that stuff will happen, right? It, I, I find if you get the team bond and the team culture right, the work takes care of itself, and very big on that. So we spend a bit of time earlier in the year profiling each of, our, each of our team members and getting under the hood of that. And everyone now knows how each of us tick effectively. We then developed our own team, you know, trademark, our own team culture and then our own set of values that we call upon and we keep it in, you know, we, we recall it, particularly in our environment when you're under pressure, right? So it was last week and the week, probably more so the week leading in to Derby Day was – Wonderful when you're looking at everyone, not wonderful seeing people under stress, but seeing how people respond under stress and under pressure. And I've had constant feedback from other teams and our partners about how well, you know, we've worked together to build something quite special. And it's all about trust and relationship and building that connection with your team because ultimately they're all exceptionally talented to deliver and you've got to trust that they're going to get on and get their job done but you need to provide that support and that, you know, be there for them and what can you do for them and I just, I don't know, it's something that I probably, the penny dropped for me five or six years ago and I'm glad it did because I probably had a, a view on the world previously where I just, I'll just keep working my backside off and I'll do all the work and, you know, the reality is that's not that's not possible for anyone. Do you find just hearing everything that you just said and you have played quite a bit of sport in your time, Everything that you've just said applies to sporting teams. Mm. And I don't know. Coach. Yeah, I was going to say, do you subconsciously think that your sporting background has helped now in in where you're at as as a coach? As Brad just said, that's what you're like at the moment. Mm. Is there some correlation there? Yeah, look, I say say there is, mate. Um, I'm I'm still coaching. Like I've coached, um, I finished playing footy, I don't know, however many years ago, and I went straight into coaching our open age reserve team and and, and our helped our senior program and then I'm still – and then I'd, before COVID I gave it up because I was, I was spent, right, because of coaching and work and I said enough's enough. And then our youngest son goes, well, you've coached Ryan, Dad. Can you come and coach me? Which I did that last year and again this year and I'm going to do it again next year. And that I do that for two reasons. It gives balance and gives an outlet away from work where I can genuinely check out from the office environment and have an hour with the players on a two nights a week and in a, and in a weekend. But I, I love it. I love coaching and I think elements of it apply to work in, in some formats and elements of work leadership also apply in that coaching or your own personal life. But 
I'm, I'd probably take, aside from all the event experience, inspiration you get from around the world, I, I, I gravitate more to um, leaders and, and whether it's sport or whether it's business around the world and, and, and I look that up often, you know what I mean, to get just little snippets of stuff where you can, might be able to reshape or craft a message or um, help, you know, help your team be better and help yourself be better. So it's probably – it does connect in. I think there's definitely a correlation and just genuinely teamwork. I think it's yeah. – you know, you know what it's like, mate. Like I, I – um, we see it every day. Like you, you're running an event together. Everyone, everyone is in it together to get to that end goal. And anyone that's not, well, then they're probably not the right partner you need working with you on your event or in your own team. The tight-knit team you've got, how many are in that? And does that scale up as you get closer to, say, Spring Racing Carnival? And if it does, those sort of short-term contractor people, how do you integrate them into such a, you know, a well-oiled team, which could probably be daunting to some people walking into that environment? Yeah, it can be. And we've got, you know, real experience now, which I've just been through <clears throat> for the first time. So I have 15 members of my team, full-time members of my team, plus Crown have 30 full-time members of their team. So effectively, you know, 45 full-time team members. And then from a casual perspective, you know, Crown will swell up to 2,000 and our additional hospitality partners will get up to two and a half, three thousand 3,000 casual staff across a carnival. But then in our own team... We also brought in three um, contract staff this year in the lead up to MCC and each from different levels of experience and first and foremost it was about that, like when recruiting for those roles and um, my, one of my head of, my head of events and entertainment does, does an unbelievable job and, and he was able to, you know, have that first and foremost, like person first and capability, yeah, they can tick all those boxes and, and we, we feel we got three great, greatly talented individuals who are able to work in and they were part of that our team from the start. So when we have a, vulner, a vulnerability meeting once a month, they're part of it, right? And whilst it can be quite confronting for some, they're not no one's obligated to participate or, you know what I mean, be part of that. But they were part of that from the start. And I felt that was important that they were, they were part of that journey and and then we and then we paired them up with one of the more experienced members of the team, and and I think that worked really well. They got exposed to some great events, some great um, some great experience generally across the carnival, and their contracts sort of end, end sort of now. But there'll be opportunity for them to return in future years as well. So fantastic! And I guess for, for the listeners who come to the carnival, enjoy the experience, and not necessarily take it for granted, but just they're there to appreciate and enjoy. Can you? Get into the nuts and bolts of, for example, when does the birdcage start being built? When do the florals start being arranged? You know what I mean? All these logistical elements that people do or people are interested in. Yeah, absolutely. So that experience overlay and planning of not just the birdcage, not just the park, club lawn, like all the corporate products have that experience overlay with them as well. So our team, along with the commercial ops team, along with our, our marketing team along with our membership team, like all of our and our operations team, we all come together and that, that work and those early designs are Feb, March each year. And then you're working through with your partners on, you know, who's, who's building it? Uh, is it? Is it Harry's? Is it, is it our other partners? Who's providing, you know, the furniture solution outside of our Harry's partnership? Same with the florals, you know. It's all part of the whole – the whole experience design element is 
well, effectively now because we've started for 2024, it's a 12-month process. But but nuts and bolts, when do, when do the trucks come in? When do they start actually laying everything down, building, you know, putting it all together? Well, the 18,000 square metres of the birdcage starts in June. Wow. Um, and it's it's a heavy, heavy load, yeah. right? It's a heavy load of um, structure that's starting to go in. And then – but that last – Probably that last four weeks is where it just goes to another level in terms of paint finishes, fit and fit out. Um, the last weeks, obviously, greenery, florals, finer touches, all those elements. But it's a it's a four or five month process, effectively. Yeah, because I, I mean, not off topic, but um, just before the Grand Prix, I don't know if you guys remember, it pissed down with rain. I think it was the day before, or yeah, it did. yeah. And I said to a mate of mine, "Oh, geez, this will be." stuffing up you know all the people the, the the last planning and he looked at me and said well if they haven't figured it out by now what are they doing i said you, you don't understand this mm. this is go time this is when the final polishing yep. is being done when the last elements are being done and rain affects that but correct so yeah it, it started in june but as you say that last week it's it's just hell for leather right and it's, it's putting it all it's, together. it's a real big push uh, even the wednesday before penfolds victoria derby day was oh, of course was, was yeah. media day right so so the, that Wednesday, you effectively need everything done. Yep. So that Tuesday night, like our teams are there in the dark, just you know, whether it's a paint job here, whether it's this piece of furniture neat hasn't hasn't arrived. You know, we had issues with transport this year where a whole fit out of the Gwen restaurant was still stuck on a boat and wasn't going to get here. So you've got to you got to adjust, and, and that was like three days out from media day. So some of it has to be the last minute. It absolutely has to be to make sure it's as as airtight and perfect as it can be. But that process leading up is months and months on end. Is there a huge amount of work that goes in between the main carnival days, so the main race days, in terms of you kind of somewhat of a luxury maybe in one way, but it'd be interesting to hear your perspective on, you know, for example, you look at the Australian Open as a great example, 14 days solid, 25 sessions versus you guys get that little opportunity in between. But what's that? process like in between yeah it's uh it's, it's turnover time effectively yeah. it's um some spaces change by mm-hmm. clients so they're they, they need to be turned over the cleaning um you know from our venue presentation partner to get that right in between penfolds victoria WA and lexus melbourne cup day is phenomenal you know to bump out of waste and getting it cleaned up again it's certainly up until probably again derby day is like a you know a key crescendo that you hit and then it's turnover it's polish polish it all up again make sure it's all looking as schmick as it needs to be for the next race day it's certainly not at that level to what it would be for derby day because you just don't have that level of um structure reset all that type because everything's probably set that way it's really just turnover time and you know, replenishing, restocking, all that type of stuff that needs to happen through your hospitality partners. There's a lot of around-the-clock work that happens. Um, but we don't do ourselves any favours. We always throw events and stuff in between <laughs> yeah, them. Totally. So you've sort of, like, you, you think about the Oaks Club lunch, for example, like the majority of our team need to, get, need to head in the crown to deliver that lunch and then get back to make sure we're turning over again ready for Kennedy Oaks Day the next day. So in for this uh, Carnival that's just finished, was there any major developments between those race days for you guys internally? Was there major changes, things you had to move and shift that maybe were unforeseen? Uh, yeah, there, there was after probably after Derby Day and it was more around some service some service things we, we identified that we needed to adjust and um, our hospitality partners were fantastic in being able to make those changes. So uh, I've learnt that apparently most 
first days that you'll there'll be some kinks you need to iron out, which we do, and really proud that you know Cup Day was just bang on, and and you just get better as the week goes on. Probably like the tennis, you know, they they get better as as the two mm. weeks roll on. Have you got any fun facts about the carnival from this year? I know Shane's sitting here wanting to know how many chicken sandwiches uh, you served <laughs> and how many he ate of them. Uh, what is it? I think we went through twenty two odd thousand bottles of French champagne and. 30-odd thousand chicken sandwiches or something, which is phenomenal. Our, our, I, I put a fair dent in some <laughs> of those. So. I'm, I'm, I'm sure you would have. Like our, our numbers are really strong. Like our attendance was up 7% on last year, which is fantastic. Really sent a message, I think, out there to the community that the, the sport's healthy and thr- thriving and you know, there was good lead-in events to the Melbourne Cup Carnival this year uh, and the show we put on and we were blessed by. When you activate a site like Flemington that has a heavy reliance on outdoor activation – you're so reliant on weather. And I've said it to my team, like I don't know how they got through last year with all, all the rain yeah. and challenges they had. And you think to this year, blessed with four amazing days of weather and it, it really is a special place, Flemington, when it's bathed in sunshine. And you see all that outdoor activation come to life. It, it was quite special and we are quite lucky. And it's the only thing... None of us in events can ever control is the weather. No. We'd all wish we could. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, all been in that game, I think. Exactly. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Was there any areas, you talk about growth, you know, were there certain areas of growth you saw this year that different to other areas, i.e. Were the, were the general punters, was there more of them versus the corporates or sort of high-end corporate to mid, mid-tier corporate or however you look at those analytics? Corp, corporate numbers are really strong. Um, they're, they're really healthy compared to last year, which is good. General public numbers are up on last year. Member attendance numbers are really strong and our mem- we've never had more members as a club. Like we've got the largest racing club membership base in the world. Uh, we broke a record last year at 33,000 and where, we, where we're at the moment, we're already over 30,000, which we didn't get to that point until earlier, this I think March this year. So we're ahead of that um, target, which is amazing. So uh, all, all of those key indicators were great. We, we introduced a new product this year called Palooza, which was – in the nursery car park, an entertainment-led product, which was a new growth area, uh, spoke to a new audience, but also spoke to some of the you know already engaged racing um, customer, which was good. And then just being able to activate some of those sites in a better way, i.e. the park, i.e. the birdcage live stage and the bar in there, I think worked really well for us this year. Yeah, the bar and the birdcage was fantastic. You and I spoke before. The accessibility now of the birdcage, once upon a time, unless your name was on a door, or you're a you know millionaire. Mm-hmm. What, 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 there's no point even being there now. It, it's a party, and I, I spent a lot of time in there. And well done on really evolving that space. Yeah, I mean the team put a stake in the ground there a couple of years ago, or last year, about that live stage in the Bird Bath Bar, which was amazing. And just the evolution of that this year, having the great weather, members having access to it, is perfect. Yeah, uh, you mentioned the Palooza Bar. The only, the only little grudge I have with it is that it buggers up one of the entries into the nursery and you've got to walk all the way <laughs> around. So okay. that's feedback. my little piece of feedback well, on I'll, that. But, uh, I'll take that. <laughs> Speaking of feedback, um, for you guys self, it's very fresh obviously, but yeah. are there any key learnings that you've already taken out of uh, this year's carnival that you'll look to apply next year? Yeah, probably on Derby Day and Cup Day, like the public realm, uh, we made some changes to a couple of traditional public bars to give a better owner experience. So what that did was it took away a little bit from that public throughput on a couple of the public bars. So we can we can make some changes there quite quite easily for next year. Um, and again, like what we did with the park this year, we changed and expanded it out in the Hill Square and we saw that really work. And the numbers in the park were up 
37%, I think, on last year, which is wow. phenomenal. So, again, double down on that and expand that. And, again, the entertainment. Like how can we add more entertainment into the race day experience? Because research last year showed us that those who buy a GA ticket or a, or a, or a membership or a corporate um, experience and are engaging with entertainment have a far better experience than those that don't. So more of that I think is going to be really important. We saw that fire with the park after the last concept we introduced this year, which worked really, really well. Do you get a bit of downtime now? Catch up with the family? You said you didn't <laughs> see him for a month, so yeah. uh, is it time to, you know? Uh, we're sort of in this period now of de- debriefing and getting ready and um, I think it's a really important block of planning that we can take advantage of before Christmas. Uh, I'll take a couple of weeks off in early January, so I look forward to that, get away um, and just try and check out a little bit, be important. Do you promote that to the rest of the team? Do you sort of take a block off together so that everyone gets a break at the same time or do you spread that out as per a traditional organisation might do? Uh, look, the club's really good about reward for, you know, time and recognition, so making sure the team gets some days back for the work that they've just delivered. Uh, it's on the individual normally. We don't like to force it like everyone gets it this week off or whatever. Yep. And they can do that however they please or each of our leaders will be able to manage that. Um, but I'm personally really big on when team members take time off, they generally just turn off. We, we, we don't want to hear from you. Like the work will still be there when they get back. Like, you know, whilst we'll probably keep them updated on email and stuff, we're not expecting them to respond or, or read it and feel hopefully they go away and they do come back like they've had a genuine break. Will you personally get to any international races to share and learn ideas and, and collaborate with other partners across the world or other members of your team get that opportunity as well? Yeah, like the club's been really good previously about getting over to Royal Ascot. There's some yep. talk about that for next year. We've had some conversations recently with the team at the Kentucky Derby. Um, we did a little bit with them this year um, through some content stuff mm-hmm. and Digi. Uh, we'll, we'll look to expand that next year. And is that knowledge sharing specifically? Yeah, I, there is, absolutely. Mm. Particularly the team that went over to Royal Ascot this year, there was, there's a lot of learnings that come back from that. Some of them were able to apply, some of them don't sort of maybe fit the Melbourne or Australian market, but there are learnings at any event you can go to. Yeah. And, and as we know, like we've got so many um, learnings in our own backyard. Like we were able to take our team through, um, through mm. some great contacts at the AFL to have a look through September Club the day before the grand final this year. So our team had a look mm. through and then we went over to look at the – the life side activation they did there in Yarra Park and, you know, whether it's the tennis, whether it's – and we've, as, as our team, being focused on events, like we've got our own events calendar we need to deliver on but we want – we've established our own events calendar of events we want to go and look at as a team as well, which is really important. Such – so important. So mm. important and we wish more and more would do it. Yep. Hey, we've kind of got to the point where uh, I like to hand over to my mate here and uh, your old mate Buzz to to load up on his uh, rapid fire questions. He's been planning these for days. He's been so excited. He said, oh, I can't wait till Luke gets in here. Well, wait and see what I've got. So I'm a bit nervous. Yeah, I'd be nervous, but uh, the pressure's on, mate. You better deliver. Over to you. Well, yeah, there is a little bit of history. So for the listeners, Luke and I have played some sport together. We did, mate. Once upon a time. Uh, we had some good times, actually, on, we did. on the field, on yep. the cricket field. Yeah. But anyway, let's get into the rapid fire and some of these might be integrated in some way. <laughs> First one, did you back the cup winner? No. Okay. No, I backed uh, Solcom actually. I changed oh, tact. Yeah. Yep. True or false, you once took nine wickets in a game of cricket. True. Were you stiff not to get all ten? Uh, I was stiff and a true story. I, I, probably, I don't think I've ever admitted this to anyone but I actually – I think I had – Seven or eight, 
and I, I like I'm was in the gonna, first seven or eight. Yeah, and then I think I I'm not going to say I deliberately dropped the catch, but I actually <laughs> dropped the catch because I had ten I had ten in ten in uh, ten in sight. I thought you were going to say Buzz dropped the catch. That's no. what I was looking for. No, I didn't. I didn't play that game. No, um, you um, okay. But I, I was at the club at the time. Yeah, you were, uh, mate. Yeah, you were. Uh, advice for young people who say aren't chefs and considering a hospitality as a career path. Any advice? Any any role in hospitality? You know, the the industry is devoid of, um, or, or would welcome any talent. So just it's 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 one of those industries that you don't need to be a brain surgeon to get involved in. And if you can have a social connection and do it, just start start an industry, whether that's um, working in a cafe, working in a bar, waiting tables, um, busing, delivering stock, whatever it might be, just get get involved and opportunities will come from that if you've got the right work ethic and intent. Yep, spot on. Um, who is your favourite racehorse of all time? So you think. Okay. Yep. Yeah, which I'll, which might surprise people. I was I was waiting for Winks being yeah. a valley guy. Yeah, but, well, um, I've, I've been there for obviously Winks's, but so so you think was a special horse and um, twenty two thousand nine Cox Plate, I believe it was. It's was my last year there before I left, and then I actually went back and watched the twenty ten Cox Plate. I, I love that horse. Uh, it was a great horse. So you think? I do remember those days. Mm. Uh, do you have any horses of your own? So I'm chipping in. Oh. Uh, I have had horses of my own previously. Yeah, no good ones. <laughs> <laughs> all been there yeah you and me both um in what was a very close game do you remember who took the winning catch off your bowling to get flemington into the grand final in 2001 wow i'm gonna say you did of course correct it's a brilliant gully catch unbelievable that was a great game right you've had yourself in 2001 that's 22 it's hard to believe actually his head's about to explode i'm pretty happy um what's your favorite event to attend Oh, well, now I actually said this through the interview process to to, to Steve, our CEO, that um, one thing I had to get my head around is not being able to actually enjoy Flemington anymore because my wife and I and friends would love going to Melbourne Cup Carnival Days and last year's Stakes Day was our last time there together, which was pretty special. So I, outside of a race day experience uh, at Flemington, which I can't enjoy anymore, um, Probably an AFL grand final, I'd say. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, it's funny. People ask me if I work during the carnival and I tell them, no, I don't want to. But uh, now that I run my own business, uh, you and I should talk. Anyway, <laughs> that's a whole other thing. Um, all right. And the last one, if you could serve one dish at your place for dinner, what would it be? I'd say probably a lovely piece of fish. Just a beautiful piece of fish with some some simple greens would be perfect for me, mate. Yeah, nice, and, nice and simple. Do you like cooking? Yeah, I love cooking. Yeah, yeah I probably... Um, I don't know, working in history, I, yeah. I had a passion for it. An early, an early leader of mine was, was really good and he was an ex-chef and taught me a few little tricks and then just sort of went from there. And it, it probably, um, again, it's like an outlet. It actually gives you a bit of peace at yeah. times when you're cooking and, yeah, I like it. Do you do anything else for yourself? I mean, you touched on before about taking some time for your you know physical and mental well-being. You've got a young family as well. But what do you do to keep yourself occupied out of work? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty big. Like I'm pretty consistent of a morning. Like I'll get up at about 4... 428, I think the alarm goes off and get myself Jeez, ready. another one that's got me beat here. Okay. Get, get ready for the day. And I'll, I'll go to the gym every morning, um, whether that's going to the gym or going for a run. I'll, I'll be doing something for 45 minutes an hour before and then just get ready for work and then just get straight into work from there. I've always been an early morning person. Um, that and then, just, and then just it might be a podcast. It might be something else that I'm listening to at the time for some inspiration. But 
the morning method for me is really important. Like if I don't have that structure in my day, I find I'm just a little bit off off the curve. And I've learned particularly that example I used from um, 10, 11 years ago that that's been really important for me to just maintain that consistency um, and you just you, know, you just feel better and you feel ready to go of, of a morning and on the job. You don't take a cold shower like Gab does, do you? I actually, Gab and I have joked about this. I actually, <laughs> I actually, I actually, I actually do have a, I do have a cold shower. Oh, morning, so, oh yeah. yeah, he's doing his at three thirty though in the morning. He, he, he does it. He's told me he does it to prepare his mind to get ready yep. and stuff. But I've, I don't know. I've always done them. I actually, on one of those Harry's golf trips, I was rooming with with Harry Jemison in the yep. room, and he heard me one morning like screaming, carrying <laughs> on. This thing. He goes, "What are you doing?" I was talking about a cold shower, so it was pretty. It was actually pretty funny. There you go. Hey, a bit of a tradition we've uh, we started on this season of Event for Life, and that is we've asked the previous guest to leave the next guest a question without knowing who they are. So today's question for you: If you had the attention of the whole world for five minutes, what would you say? Um, just. Just be kind and um, and smile and smiles are free. I love I love that saying. So I, I use that often. So it made me smile. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely, love it. Absolutely. Hey, look, thanks very much for joining us on an event for life. Um, amazing chat. I, again, we could sit here and talk for hours, and there's a lot of synergies, and I'm sure we'll do that uh, once we uh, turn the microphones off. But um, no, we really appreciate your time. Congratulations again on uh, this year's carnival in particular, but um, your career in general. You know, you've certainly lifted the bar uh, on what we do and the professionalism within this industry um, and that's all kudos to, to how you go about it um, and your dedication to, to your craft. So uh, thank you very much for joining us. Um, really appreciate it. Uh, congratulate. I just wanted to say, yeah, congratulations on what was a great week and uh, great to see you again. It's been a while. So. It has been a while and thank you both. Like I think what you're doing is amazing. Um, as I said, I've listened, to a, I've listened to a few of them already of, you know, some some close friends and I think it's amazing what you're doing for the industry and Congratulations on it and I look forward to listening to in more over the future. Thanks, Cheers. mate. Much appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of An Eventful Life. Don't forget to subscribe on your favourite podcast platform so you don't miss an episode. It makes a huge difference to us and don't forget you can also find us on our new YouTube channel. This show is for you, our listeners. Our aim is to bring you the most in-depth conversations and life experiences from the event industry. So if you have any feedback, suggestions on guests you would like us to interview on the show, please reach out to us through our social media channels. I'm Brad. And I'm Shane. See you next time on An Event for Life.